0: Welcome to The Female Red Zone, a podcast dedicated to sharing insights from women who have made an indelible mark in business and the path they took to soar.
1: Welcome to The Female Red Zone. This is Marybeth Kizmeski. Today, I'm interviewing Mindy McKenzie, or the Velvet Hammer, as she is affectionately known during her days at liquor giant Jim Bean. She is a currently sought-after speaker and CEO advisor to Fortune 100 companies, Previously, Mindy served as the chief performance officer of Beam Incorporated, where she was responsible for a team of 150 and was part of the executive team that led consistent outperformance and created tremendous shareholder value delivering double-digit earnings growth. So Mindy's done a lot of things. Uh, ultimately, she helped organize the negotiations for the $16 billion buyout of Beam. And she's also worked at other companies, Campbell Soup, Walmart. She's lived across all over the world, and she primarily focuses on senior leadership, HR, organizational development roles. She is absolutely an amazing person, and I'm so thrilled to have her here on the Female Red Zone today. Welcome, Mindy.
0: Thanks, Mary Beth. I'm happy to be here. So
1: what would you say? I mean, you've had a lot of corporate, arguably, you've had a lot of corporate success. But what would you say is maybe one of the biggest successes that you've had, Uh, over the years and and why was it so successful?
0: I think survival in corporate America is a success um, just in and of itself Um, and being able to adapt to three very different uh, company cultures. I think probably though I'm most proud of what the executive team and I at Jim Beam accomplished. Um, In the space of about four years we delivered hundred and six percent shareholder value return. and It was a team effort and being on a team that accomplished that uh, together with a group of people that I really respected um, through an intense uh, turnaround because the company wasn't performing Mary Beth well at all and it was one of the reasons that Jim Beam was attractive to me because it's a great industry. Uh, great margins, much better than soup margins or peppered Farm cookie margins. Um, and so it was exciting, but it was an underperforming company, and to come together with a group of people, turn it around, and then ultimately, which we did not anticipate, having Suntory, which is a huge Japanese conglomerate, come in and offer an incredible price for us, that's probably something I'm most proud of, um, and it was definitely uh, the team of us that did that.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. And one of the things that um, I, you know, I know about you is that you have now left the corporate world and you've written a book and you're going out and doing consulting. Talk to us a little bit about your book, The Courage Solution, because I think that what you talked about in terms of some of the successes is exactly what made you successful and, and what, you know, sort of led to writing the book, The Courage
0: Solution. Well, with the book, um, and you mentioned it in the intro, I was known as the Velvet Hammer at Beam. I did not know until about a year to my tenure there when we were at a company event, and one of the executives pulled me aside and said, you know what we call you, don't you, Mindy? And I was like, "Uh, no. And they said, we call you the Velvet Hammer. And I stopped, and I thought, you know, I'll take that, actually. That's not bad. And just as I don't marry Beth, I was the only female on an executive team of 10, and and you know the spirits industry is very male-dominated um, so but I took it as a compliment and what basically I learned working at all three companies and what I've written about are some of the things that are just very practical um, methods that you can do on the job every day to increase your impact because what I see all the time and saw being in it and now advising executives is that everybody is hungry for ways to feel more fulfilled and people get more fulfillment when their relationship with their boss whether that's the chairman of the board or you know a senior vice president or any level in the organization uh, is better where they have more impact, where they are considered um, somebody to listen to um, and where their peers and relationships with their direct report teams are really healthy so they can get stuff done because strategy is never the thing. People can come up with beautiful strategies. It is the execution of that and when it's executing great ideas for growing your company, it comes down to the relationships that you have because you have to get things done through people. So my book is all about that and how... Uh, business professionals can take ownership for that and change the situation for the better, no matter the circumstances that they find themselves in. yeah, it
1: sounds like a book that everyone should read. Um, I'm looking forward to reading it myself and what's the what's the status of the book right now?
0: So the publication date is may first the book will be available for sale um beginning in April actually, and so now it's just all about getting the message and I'm doing a bunch of keynotes at various organizations and have been for the last year based on the material in the book, and that will continue. So, um, but yeah, knock on wood, May 1st, it'll be out and um, available. So, I'm really excited. Excellent. Well, good luck with
1: that. And I know that I'll be reading it, and probably lots of our listeners will be as well. So, in your career, you've had to, you know, reaching up to the highest levels of corporations, you have had to take a lot of risks. But what would you say is the biggest risk? That you've taken so far, and and what sort of has come from that?
0: The biggest risk, um, which probably doesn't sound too risky, but it felt risky at the time. When I was at Campbell Soup, they had asked me to uh, go to Asia Pacific and run uh, public affairs and HR for the Asia Pacific region. And so I was two years into that gig, loving my life and mention as a as a tangential note I'm a single mother raising my son he started school down there so we have built this life in the southern hemisphere and I'm traveling all throughout Asia and just getting this amazing experience and I would have found myself Mary Beth a very global executive before that because I traveled around the world and all of that but there's nothing like living um, halfway around the world from what you're familiar with and being in markets that are so very different from your own um, on a continuous basis uh, it just changed my life and then I got a call about Jim Beam and Campbell's was just wonderful to me and I had this fantastic career path and it was just I knew what I was going to go do next and and um, got this call out of left field and ultimately made the decision to leave and go <laughs> and do this turnaround and move to Chicago from Sydney Australia which people were telling me I was absolutely a lunatic to do um, because living in Sydney was be amazing and so it was it was a huge risk, but it was also the biggest game changer. I would say, and I referenced like the turnaround and what we did, and um, Fortune Brands, who was the parent at the time. We broke apart the company a year after I got there, and and respun the company as a peer player. So I had all these amazing experiences that I could never have anticipated and did not know would occur when I actually took the job. So I'm very thankful that I did that and. Ultimately, it's great because the folks at Campbell Soup they were super supportive, although not exactly happy at the time that I they that I left my international expat assignment. Um, it was a tough decision!
1: Yeah, it sounds like it was. I know you know recently you uh, made another tough decision, uh, leaving your corporate C-suite job at Jim Beam, and um, after the buyout, you you know, got, got an offer. And why don't you tell the the audience a little bit about what the process was where you decided that maybe you wanted to step back and do some different things, um, as opposed to continuing in the corporate world and, um, and, and why you decided to do that.
0: Well, so <laughs> this was absolutely, um, probably one of the greatest inflection points. And I don't want to sound so fancy smancy, but it really was. <laughs> when I had, when I left beam, I was, um, accountable for strategy and M&A, and HR and internal comms and uh, the company and the board been talking to me um, about being a CEO candidate and there were uh, a couple of us that were um, on that path. So I was one of uh, three but there was really me and, and another gentleman that were on that path and being developed. For that So that was all before Suntory came along and then Suntory comes along. And I ended up being the lead negotiator on that whole transaction, so I spent a ton of time with their executive team, which culminated at the end um, after six months and right before the deal closed, and I was in charge of the integration and of that, where they sent a representative over from Pan. And, Mary Beth, I, I still can't believe it, but I was sitting in my office, and this very nice gentleman. Um, from the Centauri Executive Team came and said the Chairman has two messages for you um, because I had a- negotiated the executive packages as well for all the folks that were staying and had not done mine. Mine was the last one, and so it- basically he said um, we want uh, you are a candidate for the CEO position. In fact, we would be the CEO position after the incumbent depart- Incumbent departs. Message number one, <laughs> and number two. Um, he literally slid a blank sheet of paper across the um, the table, and my mind was like, "What in the world?" I couldn't believe it while it was happening, because it was like a movie scene. And he said, "The chairman wants to know what it will take to keep you to stay." And here's a blank sheet of paper. And write your number down. And it was a very surreal moment because I'd worked my whole career, wanted to be the CEO, had you know ran multiple functions, um, but we were also like at the end of an era, and and I was kind of like in shock to um, sitting there. So I asked for three days and thank, you know, thanked him profusely and said, I, I have a lot to consider and went away and, you know, literally almost had a stroke after <laughs> room. I swear I've never <laughs> sweat so much in my life. I mean, the door closed and I was like, I wish somebody <laughs> could have seen this because it was so crazy. Like it was like, it was so crazy. Um, and But then I went home and really started to evaluate the opportunity. And, it sounds kind of weird, like why would you even have to think about it? But I'd spent nearly five years in this really intense time in Beams Turnaround and we were just on fire but um, and working towards a CEO thing and everything, didn't see the transaction coming and had this amazing time, but I was never ever ever home. And so I was a total weekend warrior to my son. And then I started to thinking about impact and was I ready to sign up for another five years of doing more of the same and living the same type of life, and I feel like that was the impact I wanted to make. and when I came down to it, I realized that if I were to say yes to Centauri and stay on, I would be doing it for two reasons: ego and fear, ego basically because you know I'd be the first female CEO in the spirits industry, and just the general ego stroking of the potential you know, of to be in that spot. But then fear that if I said no that I wouldn't have another opportunity like this and when I kind of looked in the mirror and realized that those would be my rationale for saying yes I realized I couldn't do it and that those weren't the right reasons to say um, yes so in fact I did the unthinkable and shocked everyone it was quite the uh, a bit of a drama um, when I declined and- was very grateful, but said, you know, no, I really want to go out. And I want to make a bigger impact and, and help the corporate tribe I love, which ended up being why I'm he- here. You know, I've written this book and I, I, um, advise, uh, see executives, et cetera. But it was a really tough decision, but I do not regret it.
1: Well talk about the, the, when you actually made the decision, uh, because you shared it with me and I, you know, it was the 11th hour, the final minute, the final oh. second,
0: so I didn't do this very, like I like I shared, I did not come to this very gracefully, right? So I sound all Yoda-like. I was not Yoda-like in that 72 hours <laughs> up to the morning of the announcement. And I was standing in my kitchen and the CEO was on the phone because he knew what they'd offered me and um, was like, this is it, you know, this is everything and you're going to get the job after I move on and blah, blah. He's on the phone with me and I'm standing in the kitchen and he's saying, Mindy, you don't have to do this. Don't leave. We do not have to announce it today. Because all the other announcements had been made. The organization knew, and everybody just assumed I was staying. And I'm standing there and I'm crying in my kitchen. And my son is standing there. He was eleven. And he was watching me. And he started to cry. And he said to me, You're not gonna quit, are you? You're not gonna leave. And I looked at him and I thought, I can't, I have to, no, I'm going to. So I like zipped it up. I got the phone, hung it up, you know, gave him a hug and thought, nope, the right thing for me to do for now is to make this different choice. And I know it in my heart, um, even as heartbreaking as it was to leave, it was the right thing to do. But it was absolutely (laughs) brutal. So yes, I went right up to the last second. Um, And so... I wish I wish I could have been more graceful about it actually but I wasn't
1: <laughs> well, you know, in uh, in the storybook version, everyone's very, very graceful, <laughs> and everyone does everything perfectly. Yeah. But, um, but, but, quite a story because you know we all have to make decisions that are for ourselves. And you made a decision that's for yourself. And I think it's very interesting what you said about you know the the, the ego and the fear. Like this may never happen to me again, so I have to do it right now. But having the confidence to know that this can happen again to you if you wanted to. Um, that that's the I mean, that's probably very freeing in a way.
0: Or being okay, Mary Beth, that it may not. And letting that go and just being at least neutral and accepting that reality. Because, you know, I know a ton of super talented, qualified senior executives that have worked their whole career to get into the top job. And so much of it is timing and luck and age and stage of the incumbent. And so sometimes it just doesn't work out because my view is, is that there are many, many executives that are out there that are qualified for the top job and only a very few get it. And so when I, when I made the decision I did, I had to be okay and acknowledge the fact that, that it was entirely possible that it wouldn't and, and had to accept it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Which, which I think, again, is very freeing to, to say, listen, but, the, but I'm okay where I'm at. And I think that's I I think that is so refreshing uh, because sometimes we feel trapped in our situation and we can't make the decisions that maybe are the right decisions for that very moment for for us and our family and, and our careers and everything else. So congratulations to you. (laughs)
0: Thank you. We'll see if it was the right thing. Right. You know, uh, looking at things in in, uh, retrospect is always the easy way to go. Oh, that was really great. Or, oh, what were you thinking?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. And you've had people tell you what were you thinking. Right. I mean, you've had people upset with you that you didn't take this position.
0: Yeah, it's. Oh, my dear. Like, so it happened just about, oh, gosh, four weeks ago. And I actually tell the story in the preface to the book, which I didn't when I originally wrote the book. And my editor came back after the whole book was written, and they said, "You have to tell your story so people have a sense of, um, you know, where you've been and kind of what you've gone through." So I, I share the story in the book as well. But this woman came up to me, and we were talking, and she was so angry with me, and said, "How could you?" do that to us. How could you? Mm-hmm. And I was really glad for the opportunity to have the conversation with her because then we really got into it, right? As far as how do we make career choices and the trade-offs that we make because her view was you're a female in a male dominated industry and you had the brass ring within sight and you your whole career and you turned it down. Like how could you not have leaned in, you know? It was like I I, swear, I I joke all the time that if Cheryl Sandberg and I ever meet, she's probably gonna slap me. <laughs> so <laughs> my, my answer is listen. I leaned to something else, and I had to listen to my gut and um, and do the right thing for now because it is all about. Me. Um that I anticipate you know when the book comes out, and some people will have a negative reaction to that because they won't they won't understand, and that's and that's okay. Um, but there's all sorts of ways you know. It takes all kinds of kinds and there's all sorts of ways to get from point A to point B. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, so in your career, you've worked in male dominated, especially the spirits industry, very male dominated. Have you experienced situations where, you know, maybe that male domination wasn't so positive for you? I mean, you have any stories that you want to share (laughs) about things that have happened that, uh, you know, that, that our audience might be interested in?
0: Well, yes, I don't know how PC this is, but um, one um, early experience, uh, relatively early experience I had is I was walking up this stairwell with a number, another member of management. This was not at Jim Beam. And the gentleman, my peer behind me, he grabbed my ass and <laughs> I turned around and I was like one or two. So I'm very short, and I, I I'm a typical, Scottish short and round, right? So, like, oh my dear, um, a uh, ballet dancer I am not. But anyway, I turned around and I didn't even think about it. I punched him, and now I think back about that moment, like. I didn't. I never it never crossed my mind to go file a complaint or go tell somebody. I just cold cocked the guy no. and I said, "Hey, don't do that." And he kind of stood back. He goes, "Hey, man, I'm I'm really sorry, Mindy. Won't happen again." And. I mean, nowadays, I mean, there'd probably be seven lawsuits out of something like that happening, but I do think there, cause stuff like that does happen and that's fairly benign, but my knee jerk reaction was just quite like, listen, Buster, I'm going to drop you <laughs> like a bad habit. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> well, it was a great relationship before, but it's a great working relationship after. Um, so <laughs> I don't know. That's not a very flattering uh, story about me, but yes, I did. I did. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's one a- way,
1: to handle the situation, right? I mean, um, you, you know, one of the things is that in a male-dominated world, you have to be careful about how you respond. And although, the, you know, the, the quote right thing may have been not to punch him um, and to go to HR, but, you know, th- there's always different ways of handling situations. And, you know, y- you're breaking new ground and you were breaking new ground by being, an you know, on the executive committee of an organization um, whatever organization that you've been in, um, where you're one of the only females and you don't want to be ostracized, but you also want to stand your ground. And this is not acceptable to do this. And so I think it's interesting that you took that approach and I like it. Yeah.
0: I can honestly say there wasn't a whole lot of thinking before responding. <laughs> so um, and I would have, if former bosses were listening, they'd go, like, Yeah, Mindy, that's your development area too. You know, you always have to. Uh, Think a bit more before you you dive into action, but um, yeah, you know I've had a spectrum of experience some mildly uncomfortable some kind of like jaw-dropping me. Are you kidding me? Like did you just say that I And I don't minimize like I hear a lot of those stories from other female executives uh, And I'm very empathetic to that because it's just like man come on you know, it's 2016 I I also have worked really really hard on because I've always been by the way always been the only female and up until the last couple of years of being the youngest executive team member as well. So it was like a double whammy. Um, but I always felt like it was my job to build the relationships with everybody. Like some people really have a hard time with the, you know, the golfing things, whatever. I'm a terrible golfer. I don't particularly love it, but I get out there and hack with the best of them and like say some money on these rounds and let's have some fun, make it social versus trying to make some a higher order point that our executive team activity shouldn't be golf because I don't like it. Well, if nine people love golf and one person doesn't, it's kind of like you got to just go along and be there, um, and you know, kind of go with the flow. So I've made those decisions and trade-offs to build a relationship, um, and. You know, and also, but then like, you know, do you drink whiskey and love bourbon and all of that kind of stuff? No, I actually know. And I like vodka and wine. And yes, I can, I can tell you all about bourbon and whiskey and I can sip it and I love the category. Um, but, you know, when we're out, we sold tequila and vodka and everything else, and I'll have my girly drink because I'm a woman and I happen to like girly drinks. And by, Oh, by the way, Mary Beth, the bourbon category is now um, a, a 50-50 split between male and female drinkers. So there's a ton of women, especially millennials coming up, they love bourbon. But I didn't grow up on that. You know, I grew up on jello shots in college, right, like we all did. So. <laughs> That's right.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. So anyway,
0: I think there's like that fine balance of just, being yourself, but also being flexible and not kind of being a party pooper. Yeah.
1: Well, one of the things that um, I I have heard about, I I do a lot of work in the financial services industry. And one of the things that I've heard, and this is also the same in politics is that it can be difficult. um, And this has been studied. This is accurate. It's not thoughts, but it's, it's difficult sometimes for women to get a male mentor Um, in, in the political side. Uh, but also on the, in the financial services side, because the men in some cases have noted that they don't really want to be that close proximity wise, um, to a woman, um, because of the, some of the sexual tension that perhaps could happen, or just, it's better if I just don't even do that. I'd rather mentor a man. I'd rather spend time with him. I understand how to do that. And I don't want to mentor a woman. And I, when I first heard this, I thought, Oh my gosh, I cannot even believe this. And on the political side, um, women have a harder time moving up through the ranks, like in a legislative office, because they're not getting mentored in the same way because the men are more afraid of, you know, going out afterwards and having a drink. I I mean, the whole thing seems crazy to me, but there is research on this that this is a real thing that still happens today. Talk about, you know, mentors. Have you, you know, have you experienced any of this or is the, Does any of this make any sense to you? Because it doesn't really to me. I mean, I get it, but I just wish that these things weren't really happening.
0: Yeah, true. I hadn't heard that research, but that's really interesting. Um, And it's really kind of unfortunate. So I feel bad for the women in the financial services industry. Listen, I've had mentors throughout my career. I have been very proactive, though, about doing that. And I'm a big advocate of that, male or female, that – you kind of scan your environment and you cherry pick the people that that demonstrate not just the capability and the success, but also the character that you want to emulate and someone you could genuinely learn from. And then you go initiate and express that desire. And that's kind of what I've done in my whole career. Nobody pulled me aside ever one time, Mary Beth, and said, oh, I'd like to give a mentor. Um, and so, and I frankly feel like As a mentee or someone seeking out those type of relationships you have the greatest need so you should initiate that need uh, to fill that need I haven't experienced uh, resistance to from folks for requests for help or mentorship ever because I think while there is that male female dynamic um, when you go to someone that you respect and say here's why I appreciate and respect and value what you do and your expertise and I would love to spend time with you um, around this and learn from you. Most people are so flattered and appreciative of number one being recognized, but number two being asked that they're willing to do that. I think where things get gummed up is that people aren't that clear. And frankly, like I said, I just don't think they take all the guys in the financial services industry. So, and, yeah, would it be great for them to go shoulder tap and say, let me proactively select a high-rising female to mentor? That would be great. That's not really how people think. Um, I think it's the incumbent upon all the women and the high-flying um, men or whatever to go seek it out. And then the people that get um, asked for that to say yes and to say a big yes and to be helpful. It's good karma to do that. But I don't know. What about you? Have you had male mentors you kind of resist because you were female? I've never noticed anything really like that. And I've
1: sought out um, male mentors. Um, in fact, all my mentors are male, and I've sought them out, and it's been totally fine. There hasn't been any problems or issues. Um, but I, I guess that for maybe perhaps a certain generation, um, that that it, it's still it's kind of an issue and maybe it's not a big issue, but it was uncovered recently. So it's it's still out there. Wow. And I think, you know, I, I think that it's all kind of in perspective as well. I mean, I don't think that's happening all the time, but, you know, I, I did hear about it. And you can sort of understand it a little bit, um, not not agree with it, but sort of understand why it might be happening. But
0: I was just going to comment, too, on the sexual tension in the workplace. You know, there's stats at, you know, people find their um, spouses in the workplace. It's like the best place, actually, to find who you're going to marry and all of that. And people work together and they're in proximity. And so to think that there's not going to be that male-female dynamic at times, I think, is naive. Again, it's all about boundaries and what people do with it. And you know you have the kind of misogynist and sexual predator people who are just gross and like are you know whatever and then you have like normal guys who find attractive women attractive and I've always thought they can be appreciative without falling into I'm gonna say the red zone <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and um, we, you know without doing the wrong thing it's all their intent and I think you know people know the difference And so um, I don't know. I don't know if that's a useful concept, but I think to think that, you know, everybody's going to be like gender neutral and there's never going to be any of that stuff. eh, Oh, please. I worked for a guy who was so good looking, like he was like cut out of cream cheese. The man is like perfect still (laughs) to this day. And um, everybody had a crush on him. Like it was, not. how could you not? Men had a crush on him. Women had crushes on him. It was, it didn't matter... The male, the male guys, the the secretary, the everybody, because he was just so genetically blessed. <laughs> you had to appreciate the beauty, but you know that's all it was. And so, and he was, you know, just a wonderful human being and a great wife and children, and never ever ever like gave off any kind of vibe. But you are gonna have that because people are human.
1: Yeah. Well. A question for you back to, you know, your career and a lot of HR and um, building teams and understanding teams. I mean, how, if you were to give advice on, on, you know, to somebody who has a team of people and maybe all of those people on the team are not like the, the highest caliber, you know, totally A1 people, but you've got a team. And, and how do you how would you recommend that they work with that team and build that team so that the output of the team is as good as if they had a whole bunch of A players?
0: That's a great question. Um, I have a very, so let me do this. First of all, you have to have the courage to fire and fire swiftly. And that is something that I see avoided everywhere. It's an epidemic. Um, because our general urge is to wait till people self-select out or to make excuses. And when we do that, Mary Beth, we're basically punishing the balance of the team um, by avoiding our responsibilities. because I think about leading teams as all about casting like for Hollywood movies, right? You have to cast really well. Um, you have to get the right people in the right roles. and that's an easy phrase to throw around, but it's so important. And so you can't even talk about, Um, developing teams if you have people that just have got to go and I actually spent quite a bit of time um, at the organizations that I (laughs) work with and then my keynotes talking about that as painful as it is but let's set that aside for a second I think if you have a group of B players and you might not have you know A plus players you can have an A plus team if you create the right environment and that takes the discipline to want to spend some time on Actually, uh, defining what great looks like and what you expect. Personally, I think the best uh, playbook out there is Patrick Lencioni's "The Five Dysfunctions of a Team." It's a really short, small book. It's the—I I think it's the best thing out there. I've done it myself over, gone through his process over and over. He's made it super easy. So Seen the personal benefits of the teams I've led by um, working through his process. And then I've also seen it with other teams where I've said to them, This is what you need to do. And the beauty of it is that he's done workbooks and it's just so user friendly. But what it requires of the leader, it requires us to carve out the time and say uh, quarterly off sites. We're going to spend a couple hours and we're going to do some work as a team on the team and how we get our job done and how we perform. And You'll have a lot of people say, "Oh, we don't have that, or that sounds too H.R.E. or frou frou, or whatever. You know, it should be all about the, you know, the results or the numbers, or you know, we're too busy for that." And I find that the leaders or the team members who have that resistance are usually the teams with the greatest dysfunction. So mm-hmm. it's, I, I mean, it's not complicated, but you have to dedicate the time and be willing to do it. And Len cioni's playbook is perfect. I think it's just so easy and straightforward it's not easy going through it because there's a bunch of stuff that's pretty confronting and challenging and requires courage and truth-telling and all of that but he frames it out beautifully and you don't have to spend thousands of dollars with a consultant and go through a bunch of hoops you can you know do it to yourself right well that's great advice now how can people reach you um
1: email phone uh how, how is it best for people to reach you (laughs)
0: Um, texting me I'm a big texter you can email me at Mindy at Mindy dot com and Mackenzie is M-A-C-K E-N-Z-I-E it's kind of funny because I'm a senior advisor at McKinsey, the consulting company so that just complicates everybody's life all the time (laughs) Um, it's pretty funny but yeah, people can email me anytime I'm on social media facebook and and uh, Twitter, and in fact, on Twitter and Facebook, you can follow me uh, Mindy underscore Mackenzie, on Twitter, and I have a whole bunch. I try to share out really cool, easy to um, digest tips and tools because Mary Beth, I know how busy everybody is. Nobody has time right to yeah. get a little boost in the arm and and so that's what I feel committed to doing so.
1: Well, hopefully people have time to read The Courage Solution when it comes out, because it sounds like it's going to be a great book. So thank you so much for being on The Female Red Zone. I really appreciate your time today with us. You're very, very welcome. Thanks for having me. And from The Female Red Zone, this is Mary Beth Kuzmeski.
0: Thanks for listening to The Female Red Zone, a podcast dedicated to sharing insights from women who have made an indelible mark in business and the path they took to soar.